Hey guys, Sklar Brothers here from View from the Cheap Seats podcast. And this week we have one of the best sports writers in the game. And he's got a great podcast as well. Jonah Carey joins us on the podcast. Did you have fun on View from the Cheap Seats, Jonah? I had the most fun and my commute was about 14 steps down to my living room. We did it in your living room. We're in Denver. It's a little road. uh, I'm going to call it a road victory for us all. We all There's no one I want to talk to more than who right now during these baseball playoffs than than Jonah Jonah Carey. Carey. So join us on this episode because we take the deepest dive. Let me just say there is a three a <laughs> Mordecai three, three finger, finger brown reference. There you go. That's and by there. the way, Gar Ryness is not here. I'm kissing him. I'm, I'm giving love. a shout out now. I feel like he always needs to be at least in spirit. When we love talk. to the batting stance yes. guy. Guys, I want to tell you about a great sponsor I have, Bompus. They're premium high performance athletic socks, and they're so comfortable you're never going to want to take them off. And because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters, for every pair of socks purchased, Bompus donates one pair of those to those in need. Almost 1 million pairs donated to date. 15% off the first purchase of four or more socks. Plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral and buy some comfortable socks. Conversations with Matt Dwyer. As you could probably guess, I'm Matt Dwyer. I'm not always pleased about it, but it's who I am. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I was uh, Jonathan Fairweather, and that would be pretty cool. Anyway, uh, if you like my theme music there, it's by a band called Les Blanks. You can go to lesblanks.com and check out more of their music. And if you haven't listened to the show before, it is what the title implies it is a conversation with Matt Dwyer a free form sort of thing we go all over the place sometimes we make discoveries about ourselves huh? we learn a little something this week i talk with a very uh, gr- uh one of my favorite storytellers kevin mcgeehan uh i call him a monologist he calls himself a rock contour he hosts a live show and a podcast called funny because it's true on the itunes there it's a 20 minute show three people telling stories and uh it's really great it's uh, it's uh, you should check it out. And uh, in this episode, I uh, I mention a story uh, to Kevin McGeehan, which I will tell, but not with great. <laughs> it is on one of my blogs, though, so you can go read it. But it's about the time I opened up for uh, Julio and Glacius, and I mentioned this tale in this episode, but I don't tell the story. But uh, to to hip you to what that story is, so when you hear me mention it, you have a better reference. Um, about five years ago, I got asked to open up for Julio Iglesias, and my friend Pam Clear, and who got me this gig, uh, she's a fancy pants agent. She, she said, "What are you doing this weekend? You're you're probably working, right?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm working at the bar." And she's like, "Well, that's too bad because um, I got you a gig opening up for Julio Iglesias," <laughs> and my first thought was, "That's like." going and performing in front of a 4,000 versions of my mother. It's just all old people who really are don't get funny. <laughs> but uh, I also, my checking account happened to be about $500 in a negative balance. So, and I was doing two shows for Julio, which paid 500 each. So I, I was like, I should probably do this. She, Pam was like, well, I need to tell you that there's a lot of restrictions to what you can can and cannot say opening up for Julio. You can't swear. You can't talk about sex. You can't talk about masturbation. Uh, it, there, there was a few more which I don't remember. And all I was thinking was, I said to her, I was like, I, I, I have no act. I, I'm going to bomb. And she said, yeah, you will. But it's going to be a great story. I was like, yeah, fuck it. I'll do it. <laughs> so I decided to do the gig. I had to drive to Palm Springs the next day. And I I start writing new material. I'm like, all right, what would my writing in the mind frame of what would my mom or 70-year-old people find funny? And I'm on my drive up there. I'm I'm running material and and whatnot and writing new material. 
I get to my hotel room. I run it through all my act. I realize I'm short. I'm supposed to do 15 minutes. I've got about 10 minutes. And I'm like, well, maybe I'll just do some crowd work and I'll improvise. And you're good at that, Dwyer. You'll, you'll figure it out. I get to the venue. And usually I like uh, to have a couple cocktails before the show. No booze backstage. <laughs> so that, that adds to the panic level a little bit. Right before I go on stage, a guy comes up to me and he says, we do this two ways. We do it your way or there's Julio's way. And we do it Julio's way. <laughs> so, And then he goes, oh yeah, and just so you know, when Julio's ready, that's when you're done doing your comedy. So you might have to stretch it out a little bit. I go into a panic. The lights go out. The crowd goes bonkers. They go batshit crazy. And all I can think of is they're not expecting me. They think Julio's about to walk out on stage. Before I get to the microphone, I'm heckled. <laughs> and my entire act, I'm being heckled. It's the most humiliating. I'm. If you haven't heard the th silence of 4,000 people, you don't know the existential pain that goes along with that. At one point, some old fella yells, yeah, I'm getting like vaudeville heckles, and he yells like, give him the hook. I get off stage, and there's this very sweet backup singer, this uh, African-American woman, and she says, oh, honey, don't take it too hard. That's just like performing for your grandmothers. <laughs> and... Very sweet of her. I go back to my hotel room. On the way back, I buy a, a big bottle of wine. I mean, the biggest. <laughs> that night, I have nightmares that the guy, the stage manager is going to come and tell me that tomorrow's show is canceled, that I should just go home, that I have nightmares that the audience the next night is filled with family members and ex-girlfriends and I'm bombing. It's gut-wrenching. The whole next day is just like me pacing. I, I had no money to buy food, so I had to stretch out <laughs> one Subway sandwich for two days. It was the most brutal thing. Night two, I, I decide, I say, fuck it. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to do my act. I'm not going to say the F word, but I'm just going to do my normal act, and I'm going to have fun. And, I'm gonna, and I brought some wine with me, and I'm just going to get a little tipsy, and I'm going to do the show. Thankfully, I have to say, I wish there was a bit more tragic ending, because that would be more entertaining. I did pretty well. I finish my set, I get off stage, and the backup singer is waiting for me there again. She's like, oh, honey, you did it. I know, I knew you could do it. And she gave me a big hug and a little kiss on the cheek, and it made me... It it she she was my my she made me feel good about the whole weekend, thank God. But uh I felt so shitty still about the night before I walked to my car in my suit and drove the fuck back to LA. <laughs> so that's a rough version of my Julio Iglesias story. Uh with that in mind, now let's listen to my episode with uh, the wonderful and talented Kevin McGee. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm sitting again in my kitchen, not again with you. That's a, that's a weird way to start off the show, but we're going to go wrong. Go right with it. Well, you've been in my kitchen before. I have, brief, but right. this is the longest so time. So again, you are in my kitchen, and again, I'm recording in my kitchen with Kevin McGeehan. Would I call you, uh, I, you're one of my favorite storytellers. I hope you know that. I do but now. Do you call yourself a monologist? Is that, or is that too pretentious? <laughs> Here's my word that I discovered the other day that, oh, I'm a raconteur. Ooh. Someone who is good at telling anecdotes, personal anecdotes. But, That's yeah. what the definition of the word is, and I just took that on and put that on my business card like a douche. Did you really? I did. Out of all the business cards I've seen in L.A., that's probably still low on the level of the douche I've seen sure, here. Sure, sure. But it forces people to ask, what's a raconteur? 
to which I can give the definition. And then we laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, and to some level, I, I think of your work on the level of uh, the late, great Spalding Gray. Like that, was he by chance an influence? Uh, he was by chance an influence. Someone gave me a copy of Gray's Anatomy, and I was absolutely amazed at how mesmerized I was with just one man talking. There's, sure, there were images and stuff behind him just to keep your eye engaged, but I was so enthralled by his story that I just could not take my eyes off the screen. Yeah, I, somebody gave me, it was actually I was in my teens and somebody, and we were doing coke, and I was doing coke with a 30-something-year-old <laughs> guy from Second City. This sounds fantastic. Chris Barnes. But I was telling some story, and he was like, you know who you'd like is Spalding Rain. He gave me uh, Sex and Death to the Age of 13, and then... That, uh, yeah, I was, I read that and then I saw Swimming to Cambodia and it was the same thing. I was just like, here's a guy sitting at a fucking table with a glass of water and a notebook and I'm riveted. Riveted. The more I do this, the more I think that everybody has stories. There's no doubt about that. But it's just, if you can tell them in an interesting way, that's what's engaging. See, that's that's an interesting point that you make because everybody does have stories. Everyone. And therefore, most, but the th mistake a lot of people make, thus why we have way too many blogs in the world, <laughs> it's <laughs> like everybody thinks they can tell them. And it's like, you can't just suddenly go, hey, I'm a storyteller. It's like, it takes fucking forever. <laughs> there was a thing. There was a moment back in Chicago where I think I've filled in the blanks over the years, but essentially the way I remember it is, Corcoran's, I think it was the bar. Maybe, yeah, it might have even still been last act at that I point. I was in the place a lot, barely remember most of it. <laughs> well, you remember the name, so at least you can reference it. Uh, it was McNapier, McNapier holding court at a table. I was sitting there, and this woman came up, this very blathering idiot woman, came up and just dominated the conversation with all these things about her day and how things are so tough for her, and it just went on and on and on. To which Mick responded, you know, just because it happened to you doesn't make it interesting. <laughs> oh. And that moment just stood out to me because, yeah, who gives a shit? Because it's, it's in your head. Of course, it is the, the headline of the day that this is so important to me. So I've added on. So I've made that little statement that he said, my mantra, but then added on a small little addendum, which is find a way to tell it so it is. So a lot of my stories find, because I keep intricate journals, I can go back and I can trace stuff to where it actually began, the moment it began. That's kind of, yeah. I mean, that's Please. interesting. Yes. No, no, I was just going to say oh, you have- Oh, it's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but it happened to you and we don't care. Well, I know. How do <laughs> no, I tell this? So it is interesting. But, and you have, that's the thing that, uh, you have a lot of stories. Like, I feel like I have a limited, <laughs> like- like, I have stories that I can tell that are really good, but, like, you're kind of endless with it. And I'm like, I'm kind of amazed by that. And I'm like, what do you do? Like, go and punch guys in bars so you have another story? <laughs> uh, I have a joke with a friend that, yeah, in Preston situations, uh, choose the story. Even if you don't want to do something or it seems like, eh, this is probably a bad idea. Eh, it'll be a story later. That's, yeah, that can be... That's, the, and I'm not going to go into this story, but I did open up for Julio Iglesias two nights once. Yes. And I, when I got booked for it, Pam Clear, my friend and agent for who hooked that up, was like, oh, it's, uh, you can't say this, you can't say that, you can't do this, you can't do that. And I was like, I have no act. I'm like, I'm in a bomb. <laughs> like, <I've, laughs> And she's like, I know, but it's going to be a great story. And I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and I did bomb. And it was an amazing story. Yeah. Maybe I'll tell it in the opening of the show when, what I should I record later? Do it. Because I'll look forward to hearing <laughs> it. Uh, but yeah, so when did you start, like, when did this all, when did you start saying, hey, I want to, because you studied improv, and I always knew you, in, when I knew you in Chicago, you always were writing, mm -hmm. like, more than anybody I've ever known, which is impressive. Sure. Even people I know who are like, I'm a writer, it's like, yeah, Kevin McGee's always right, like... Sure, and a lot of it's real personal stuff, and it's all stuff that the world doesn't see, but it's always just cranking out whatever. Yeah, and you said before we started recording that you're sometimes amazed by the things that you share. Yes. Like how open, and you are very, the show about your mother mm -hmm. 
was really, I mean, it's a very raw and emotional yet beautiful story. An ex-girlfriend of mine said this to me once, and it just stuck with me, that I told her this story. I hadn't seen her in many years, and we met up for lunch. And I told her this story about this guy in Michigan where I was living at the time who hugged me all the time to the point where it became very, very uncomfortable. <laughs> and I went on to this thing of well, how my girlfriend at the time and I, we had this experiment because uh, he would come over with his wife, and for some reason he took a huge liking to me, almost, let's say, guy crush level. And would make a point to hug me. So our experiment became, I'm going to be in different rooms. We're going to see what it takes for him not to hug me. But no matter what I did, body language, if I turned myself away, he would hug me from the side. If I was in another room, he would come in that other room to find me and do it. So one day I just blew up at him. So we were going to go see the movie Leatherheads. And that's a very huggable movie. Such a huggable movie. <laughs> oh, anything Clooney directs is going to make men hug. <laughs> So we were couples, and we would couples date, I put in air quotes. So that was our vernacular for whenever the four of us would meet up. So my girlfriend and I are sitting in the row, and then we see the two of them show up, and then they discuss to themselves who they're going to sit with. And then they walk down the row. I stand up politely for his wife to walk past me, and then he comes by. And as I'm sitting down, I feel him grab me, pull me close, and his lips touch my ears Ooh. as he says, I'm really looking forward to date night. I know me, and I've known me a long time. <laughs> and one of my patterns that I always do is I will let frustration build until I explode. And tonight was the night I exploded because right as I felt his lips touch my ear, I said, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Never do that again. So then it gets very uncomfortable. And then we all go out afterwards and it's very uncomfortable. Then the next few days I receive emails from both of them apologizing, saying this was not a gay thing. This was blah, blah, blah. So I have to approach him and he and I talk about it and we apologize and I say, I'm sorry, this was not. It was more of a personal space violation that I reacted to. He apologized. And then as we stood there, finally friends again. The only thing we could do was hug. <laughs> so the point of that whole story was I told that to a girlfriend of mine, uh, an old girlfriend of mine, as we met up, and she said uh, she loved that story and was laughing, and she said one of the things she absolutely loves is when someone can have an objective view on something where they just happen to be one of the main characters. So... I think that's one thing with storytelling that for me makes perfect sense is just the tell what needs to be told. Don't waste time on backstory or any sort of minutia that you think is important. Just what is necessary to get to the event that you are telling about that's all going to come together and everything has a purpose. And I was disjointed. Where do you think the humor comes in those though? Is it just the blatant honesty? The or blatant the honesty. That the more honest you are, because we're all idiots. <laughs> we're all idiots. And we all do stupid things. And the more it's that whole thing of getting ahead of the ahead of the game with don't want people to make fun of you. Call it out first. And they can't do it at that point. It completely negates the power of that. For me, it's eh, I don't care. Yeah, I'm fine talking about stuff. Yeah. Is there any are there any things that because there there are I feel like with what I do or when I, I, you're always striving to be more honest and more like, I don't know, like sort of like Spalding Gray or Richard Pryor, whereas these guys, it was pretty open. It was, I mean, Pryor talks about sucking dicks and so does Spalding Gray. There's a theme that you might, that you might need to explore. Oh, no. <laughs> but just like, but that's pretty, you know, especially in their era or especially Pryor's in the 70s where it's like. People weren't sucking as many dicks as they do now. <laughs> now it's kind of true. I mean, if you look at stats, I mean, dick sucking has definitely just skyrocketed. <laughs> but like the just the raw openness that they had, and I'm like, was there ever anything? I think Spalding Gray admitted it once. He's like, I don't share. There are he there are things he would hide, and it's like, but do you want? Are there things that you hide, and do you want to? Does it bother you? Do you want to like expose those? Is that like a Yes. There's one that is a very big story and one that affected five years of my life that I kept 
accurate track of everything that happened in it that I so badly want to tell. But if I do tell it, it will out someone on something. It will make certain people look bad. Ratio Sands? <laughs> no, not this No, time. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but that point, so the question that I have, the moral thing that just beats me up inside is, why am I telling this? This is going to hurt someone if I do. Why am I doing it? Just because I need another story to tell? The show that you mentioned earlier about uh, my mother, it's uh, Four Aces, just to say it to the people who don't know what it is. And they, if it's seeable, see it. Sure. So... I guess with that one, I don't even know where I'm going with this. I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's okay. We, we, this, the whole show never knows where it's going. Great, great. Uh, oh, I forgot what my correlation was. To outing somebody? The thing that I had trouble with, with my, it's basically the story of my mother's death and the five months that I lived with her prior to her death. And the thing that uh, was absolutely fascinating theme-wise was the fact that she knew beyond a shadow of a doubt what her fate was going to be. Uh, I was not leaving that house under any other circumstance unless she was dead. So this horrible thing that was happening, the thing that we just inadvertently, well, just we just did, was we embraced the situation as opposed to letting it just beat us up. And we threw this big party for her and... Uh, it was just this beautiful, magical thing that ended her life on it triumphantly. Now, it was a great story, and I've never been a part of anything where every element that I needed for a story came into play. But the question I had was, why? Why am I telling this to an audience? Is it because I just want them to hear a story about my de- dying mama and how awesome I was at a good point <laughs> in my life? I mean, that, that was the thing that I had trouble with of why am I doing this? But the bookend of the whole show is when I was busted in customs, having a small amount of drugs on me, and then one of the customs agents finding my journal from that year when all that happened, reading it, finding a connection between us, and then letting, us, letting me go because of what was in that journal. Finally, I had my why, which was I had the proverbial gun to my head by a customs agent telling me, explain to me what this thing is that I'm reading. So I had to tell him what this was. And my line is, it's the five months I lived with my mother right before she died, but everything worked out okay because we gave her a party. <laughs> so at that point, I become humanized to him. And he, I am no longer the uh, douchebag uh, guy who just walked off a cruise ship with $4 remaining of a $10 bag of marijuana. I was now this someone who he could relate to because his grandmother had just died of cancer moments prior. So I finally had my why. So I can tell an audience the time where I was forced by a customs agent to tell the story of my mother as opposed to me just injecting this, here's a story of my mama, here's a story of customs. And it just happens to be this story. Yeah, you're real good with that structure stuff. <laughs> I mean, this, 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 when you see that show, I mean, it's very intricately, at least for m- my brain, intricately. Oh, mine too. <laughs> And it time jumps and it's, yeah. and it's not just like this. Hey, here's my tale of this thing. Yeah, like it's a very so, th- and which also keeps you even more so engaged. Other than the fact that you're really good at the storytelling. Whatever, it's just my lovely baritone. It is. Do you, now with the with the journals, because mm-hmm. I used to keep a journal, and then I had a couple people read them, mm-hmm. and <laughs> and I was like, uh, by your choice or by oh, them just no. doing it. I had an ex. My second ex-wife? No, uh-huh. first ex-wife. Sorry. Oh my God, they get so. Oh, they run together. <laughs> they do, and I achieve. I've had two wives by Good the work. age of uh, thirty-one. Two divorces, I may add. And but she read some things in there. Woke me up at eight or nine in the morning. I'd been drinking till four or five in the morning. So you were sleepy. <laughs> oh, I yeah, I was. But it, and I but and it was just like what it was. Just she wasn't sleeping with me, so I was writing about all the people I'd like to sleep with, and it was a real shit fire in, for, in my life. Also used a line from the film Lolita, where I was like, it's their pieces from of a novel I'm working on. <laughs> uh, Which she'd seen the movie, too, so not a good cover. Not a good, yeah. But I mean, like, here is this, these, you have five of them in front of us, very vulnerable. Like, if, do you ever think, like, 
I don't know if there's something in there you're like, oh, fuck, I hope no one ever sees that. Because if you take a stray bullet, and we live in L.A., it could happen, somebody might read those. Okay, so when I first started doing them, I started doing them in 2002, so I've been doing them 10 years now, and each one gets bigger and bigger in the year. When I first started doing them, it was a day-to-day account, and I'd write down everything. Uh, Minutia. But anything that was interesting to me at the time, I'd put down, and a lot of times it involved people I slept with. (laughs) So I made sure for those first few years that I never showed anyone and I hid them and I never even really talked about them. But the more I do them, the more they become edited versions of my life as opposed to an accurate day-to-day account of my life. So as I look back on certain time periods and I remember it, I definitely have created my narrative for my life with the stories that I choose to include in these books. There's some bad stuff I leave out. (laughs) There's some things I don't feel like writing down and remembering. So the, the ones of recent years, I don't care if anybody finds them. I would talk about any of that stuff to anyone. Right. Well, it's like Bukowski would say, I'm always the hero of my story. So it's like, of course I'm going to look good. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, because that's always uh, another thing too that I, I strive for is to never go into a story with, uh, here's where I was awesome. (laughs) Just try to cut it with, as I said before, in the major umbrella statement, I said, we're all idiots. So I always try to kind of infuse my idiocy and some bad choices I made within this. Sometimes I win, sometimes I lose in the stories as well, because there's plenty of those. Where you lose? Where I lose. I got some in the lost column. I think we'd like to hear, especially in that genre, we'd like to hear more of, not, we'd like to hear more of the idiot faction of those stories opposed to the, because I saw a guy telling a story on stage once, and it was all about his three-way with two really hot chicks, and it was like, no one can relate to no this. No one can relate to that. And no, no one, and you're just coming off like a smug asshole, and, and it, everybody hated him, and it was like, supposed to be comedy, I was like, you're a fucking asshole. Yeah, that's just bragging. I've had threesomes with two really ugly people <laughs> i'm not even sure what sex they were that's how it was just but you gotta have a three-way right sure oh <laughs> it was like circus like workers really or they could have been they could have they okay. could have been all right they all right been. so it wasn't wasn't you were hanging around a new group of people right yeah why and why in a world where everybody does stand up yes <laughs> why would you not what made you, did you ever toy with that? This is as close as I've come to toying with that. But this is more in my wheelhouse. I like having something with a beginning, middle, and end. And having a five-minute segment where that is just this one thing, as opposed to a series of jokes. I just, I can't think that way. Did you, yeah, have you ever done it in a stand-up venue type? Because, like, Kyle Kinane is kind of a storyteller. Yeah. I I haven't seen him in a long, but I mean it's more yeah, yeah. than like one two punch type stuff. I have I, the mostly there's so many storytelling shows out here that I like doing those just because it's under the auspice of this is storytelling not stand up. Yeah. Therefore it is different even though they're part of the same Venn diagram. It's different. Mm-hmm. I say with a mild tiny question mark. <laughs> Can you can one bomb in those situations? Oh my god, yes. Very much. Because it all depends on the things that for me make a bad one is when you're just recounting memories where there's no story to it. It's just here's a series of memories I remember from this certain thing that kind of happened. Thank you very much. And those just eh. but if there's a story where there's one thing that you're talking about, but here's all all the details that you need for this one thing where no one wants to hear about just your camping trip, but they'd rather hear about the time dad set himself on fire on the camping trip. Like, that's a more interesting story as opposed to just, yeah, we went on a camping trip and mom (laughs) forgot to bring sandwiches and dad was mad. Who cares? Yeah. Like I said, most people don't know how to... Yeah. I say who cares flippantly, but I mean, just tell us the one thing that happened that was really makes this day different. Here's the improv training. What makes this day different than any other day? And that's what the story is. Right. When did you start? How old were you when you started to realize this is sort of the direction your life was going to head in? 
And how awful of a feeling was it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think honestly when I'd always, because uh, I toured for Second City for so long that I just started writing stories of things that happened on tour because it was the most interesting my life had been up until that point. So I started just keeping track of all that stuff and writing letters to people and then just keeping those as stories. But then I think it was honestly going home and helping my mother and then the journal of that leading to me just writing hundreds of pages about that time period. And then doing that show about it just made me like, oh, I really like doing this. It's interesting because when, when I see you, it's, it's a weird thing because I see when I saw that show and you're telling the story about your, there's also, I, I don't know if this is going to sound weird, but there's a joy in what you're doing, you mm-hmm. of, but you're talking about a horrible sure. part of your life, and it's really like a interesting uh, dynamic conflict. What would that be? You're the you're the bigger brain here. Well, uh, I'm gonna put my big brain to the side and go into another topic. <laughs> um, but the main thing I'd always think is here's the way I described it to myself, which is that story is the funny and happy ending to a sad and beautiful story. That's mm-hmm. how I always looked at it. That no matter how much sadness there was, that she was going to die. Both of us knew it beyond a shadow of a doubt, and my job was to help her decline. And just the fact that she wanted to make the best of it, and we were, both, we were great friends, and we got along really well, and we appreciated each other, and we're fans, and found each other funny. So when I suggested, wouldn't it be funny if we threw like a big going-away party for you? And then just cinematically it was this very cool thing where she got to tie up all these loose ends in her life. She got to win with my father. She got a great win with him. She won with her brother. She stood up to people she had never stood up to before. It was pretty spectacular to witness. Period. <laughs> <laughs> I remember cause I, because of my own darkness in my life and I, I personally avoided seeing the show for a while because, mm-hmm. and I've, felt a great deal of guilt about that but I and I wrote to you and I said hey I have a really difficult time with death and you wrote yeah. back you're like it's about life <laughs> and I was like oh that's a better way of looking at it. like I mean that's just my own but I was like that was a powerful statement to me yeah and it affected me and it kind of affected the way it started to to change the way I view some of those things in life that's awesome because hey thank you yeah, you're Wilkes. You're so Wilkes. Because uh, the thing about that, the one thing I hated about the, that story is the fact that, damn it, why is cancer such a big part of this? Because immediately, I know for me, if I heard what it was about, I would think, eh, I'm okay. I don't really want to. I'm, that's, I'm okay. <laughs> but it's not about that. It's about embracing what is happening to you and that, and in no way confusing that with weakness that the fact that she leaned into it and just dug in and walked straight forward into this was pretty cool to watch. So I will never tell anyone what it's about. Whenever I talk about it, when I first introduce someone to it, here's my elevator pitch for the show. In October of 2009, I was detained by U.S. Customs and Border Protection when a dog smelled illegal substance on my body. I was taken to a back room and I was thoroughly and embarrassedly searched. One customs agent, a man who threatened my incarceration, went through my backpack and found my journal from 2006. He began reading this journal and very soon discovered a startling connection between the two of us, at which point he made it his goal to get me released without charges. This is the story of what he read in that journal. It's a great opening. Thank you. So (laughs) people always ask me, what did he find? You have to watch the show. But I'm not going to tell you. It's about <laughs> cancer and a woman's death. Uh, uh, now, that is a pretty epic. Do you feel like, oh, fuck, what do I do next? To, oh, my God. Yes. I guess that's every one of our fears. I feel it all the time. Uh, Second City, where we met, I mean, that was what I strove for. I just was wanted that so badly for so many years, and then I got it lived it out and then when it was over was oh my god what's next it's like college almost it's like because you're yeah. like oh fuck i gotta go do something now <laughs> i gotta put these skills to use so then when i go home and help her and my life is completely upheaval i leave the life that i loved behind go home help her and then suddenly i'm 
lost and I don't know what to do. And this huge miraculous thing has happened in my life. And then suddenly, uh, what now? So I chose the route of depression. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I was going to ask you about that. Oh, yeah. That, well, because you said you, because I said I have an act to be reclusive, and you were like, oh, if, yeah, me too. Oh, if left to my own devices, I will, yeah. Do you oh. think it's depression-based, or do you think, what do you, because uh, I've been trying to really pinpoint why I, more than most people, can spend days alone. Remind me, I'm sorry, uh, you're an only child. No, I'm the youngest of five. Okay, so that theory's gone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm but an I, only child, and I can entertain myself for hours. And be completely fine with it. But then I would say this. Depression is a result of being able to spend time by myself because then it just kind of leads into it. Depression is never the reason that I want to spend time by myself. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That totally makes sense. Yeah, I don't. I think people have thought like, oh, Dwyer's a weirdo and whatever. And it's like, no, if I don't spend a certain amount of time alone I st- it starts getting crazy in my head yeah like I need to step back and sort things out and and I'm thankful that I have a life that I don't really have to be anywhere a good portion of the time <laughs> I'm dreading the time I have a schedule I I've been at more busy since I've started doing this show than I ever have in my life and and sometimes I'm, I'm I'll get frustrated I'm like what are you being frustrated for like you're doing something you you love like don't be such a dick. <laughs> but the good thing is I do a lot of the interviews on the phone and I don't have to leave my home. I win. Sure. And there's also the way you trick your mind where you do a phone interview. I'm going to put this on you. I'm just I'm going to speculate. Okay. You do a phone interview, you complete your task of getting this recorded, and then suddenly it's hey hey, look what I did today. I'm done. <laughs> oh, I've done that. Where I'm like, "Oh man, I got shit every day this week." And it's like you uh, an hour conversation with somebody, yeah. Mr. Busy? Mr. Busy. And then the rest of the day is the reveling in, oh, look what I accomplished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I go to my Tumblr page where I post solely about the show, and I, I'm not kidding you. I do it all the time, and I look at how many episodes <laughs> I've done. I'm like, hey, you done something. Here's one of my little tricks to, um, hey, you, done, you did something. So I do a show called Funny Because It's True. At Second City every other Tuesday. Which is also a podcast. Which is also a podcast. Uh, and I take uh, my favorite two, I just take two stories that I really liked of other people's and then I'm always the third. So it's 20 minutes, three stories, I'm always the third one. And uh, Or better to say, you're always the headliner. Sure, I'm cutting it with some humility. <laughs> it's your I'm, show though. It's my show. I'm, uh, but here's my way of procrastinating while still feeling I'm accomplishing something. So one of the ways to market this show is that I've each show I do a new poster for it. And the rule is to myself that I'm always on every poster regardless. So it becomes time of playing around with all these different posters. So each So there'll be days where I did a poster. Nice work. You're done. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, but it's creative energy and that can be taxing and you're putting emotion into things. Oh my gosh, and they're really good. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. You just were flipping through the book of them, and it is really good. So you have to do, I'm sorry, how often is the show? Is it every week? Every other. Every other week. Still, that's so, you have to come up with... 20 to 24 minutes a month. That's, uh, that's impressive. Some minutes are better than others. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I also have a very nice supportive audience that comes to it, so, Yeah. But if you're not, I think if you're with something like that, it, I think if support or no support, I think you can lose people pretty quickly if you're being dishonest and yeah, and whatever. Are there times uh, like where you feel like, oh, fuck, I'm repeating myself? Sure. There's also times where I just can't find the angle that makes this thing interesting. Yeah. Like, this is, and this is, I think, a disease. This is a, from a lot of people with our improvised backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Don't we all have improvised backgrounds? <laughs> yeah. I was actually watching something, a jazz documentary last night, and the guy was like saying, like, we're all improvising. That's what life is. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. But anyway, uh, were you half ass? Like, I'll, I should write a lot of the things I do, and instead I'll just be like, ah, I'll figure it out when I get up there. <laughs> yeah. Do you, but you're you're like more of a 
technician of writing. Like you're like a very sure. fucking put it out there. Some weeks are better than others. Some weeks I'm more, I'm really prepared some weeks where I have everything written out and I know exactly where I'm going. Other weeks I'll just have beat sheets that I just want there. Here are the things I need to hit to get to the end. So the end makes sense. And those, yeah, so it varies. I'll either be really ready or I'll be mildly, I'll be able to talk because I know exactly the roadmap that I have to take. Is there a, uh, is is there an end goal? Like, do you, does no, the answer, no, I, no, not at all. <laughs> but do you not like, oh, I want to be like Spalding Gray and tour around, which was like, I was like, what a great life this guy has. He goes and does these shows. He gets drunk. Yeah. Jumps into a river. <laughs> uh, as of right now, uh, I don't know. Here's my way of justifying in my head. I'm building a body of work. I think that's a, a not a, I mean, I think that's true. So I'd love to write books. Uh, I have all these and if I find a way to put them together and I can find a way that people would care to read them. I think, I think people would. Sure. But to get it in their hands. Um, yeah. I'm looking at the titles of these. Uh, I, there's two. I don't know why they're jumping out at me. Hot dog and mustache address. <laughs> Great. Uh, what's mustache address? So sitting in a bar with four friends. We're at a long table in the middle of the bar uh, in the middle of Hollywood in Freaky Deakyville. So at one point I look out of the corner of my eye in this very crowded bar and a man in a top hat and a big mustache, like a twirly kind, like a Mr. Monopoly type looking fellow, walks in the bar. So I see him in my peripheral vision. He starts to walk towards me and I see him kind of coming towards me and then out of the blue he jumps around my left shoulder and jumps into four score and seven years ago (laughs) the thing i found fascinating these one who is this guy and why is he dressed like this why is he telling me the gettysburg address and why did he choose the one thing that i have actually memorized and can recite back Four score and seven years ago, and then I jumped in. Our fathers brought forth in this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated the proposition that all men are created equal. And then he looked at me and said, yes, that's exactly right. And then walked out of the bar. And that was it. That was the only encounter we had. It was just that brief. And yeah, that's the mustache address. The mustache address. Oh, that's so fucking great. Hot dog. There is a word that I will not use that I find absolutely deplorable because of the connotation that it gives off. I will replace that word with the term hot dog. So Bronger and I are at the gym and there's a guy who's always there and we've nicknamed him attention and attention is a, a big black guy who looks very much like Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson could play him in the movie. So attention is working out and attention wants to go for the biggest, the heaviest bench he's ever gone for. So we ask this other guy, this white fellow, who I'm going to call Pex, because he has a big chest. <laughs> he asks Pex, hey man, will you spot me? Pex agrees, walks over, and they get situated at the bar. And then attention, as he's about to lift it, gets scared. And then, like, no man, I can't do this. Pex, yeah, you can. Come on, man, just do it. Attention. No man, I can't. I got to get mad. <laughs> call me a hot dog. And this is loud in the gym on the second floor where everyone is there. Loudly says, call me a hot dog. Pex doesn't want to. So then attention starts to beg him. Come on, man. That's the only way it's going to get me mad is if you call me a hot dog. Pex eventually relents and says, okay, man, fine. You're a hot dog. No, man, louder. I want you to call me a dirty, stinking, filthy hot dog. At which point the gym is now silent. Brong and I are in a situation where we're not facing them, but we're facing the mirror that we can see the entirety of this happening. And the tension is so thick at this point. And then this other black man, an older man who looks like uh, he would have been cast as uh, Cliff Huxtable's brother, enters in and just pushes Pex out of the way ever so slightly and says, all right, come on, you dirty hot dog. Let's just do this. And then he did it, and he was actually able to max out with his bench that day because he was called a hot dog. I want to know why he, uh, uh, that story behind why he's a hot dog. Also, 
and I have no problem with this, but you yelled at that very loudly in my apartment. And my building manager is like right through that dull wall. She already has heard me say horrible things. So I think she okay. thinks I'm like the weirdest. Because I always like say, sure, I, you're have a, I have a penchant for awful things in the world. Which is why I chose to use another word to replace <laughs> the word. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know why that didn't click in my head. There it is. <laughs> there it is. I'm on delay. Because I really just enjoyed the, I enjoyed the guy being called hot dog. I got really caught no, up no, in no. it. So that was the whole thing is that hot dog replaces another word that would cause the air to be sucked out of a room pretzel? if it's yelled. Is it pretzel? It's pretzel. <laughs> I say I'm an with, idiot for missing that. <sighs> it's a, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, we were both amazed that, I mean, <laughs> the N word is a powerful word. And when yelled by a man saying, call me it. Call me a dirty, stinking, filthy, this word. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty jarring. So that's what hot dog is. That, so here's another thing, too, that, all right, here's a theme. Because I have all these journals and because I'm constantly writing stories and doing stuff for this show, I find myself living in the past a lot as opposed to living in the present. There was a period of time where, like, nothing was really happening in my life, but I was really going back and really examining my past. So I wasn't really living in the present. So I had to make a point of pay attention to what's happening as opposed to just fixating on what has already happened. Much like that, like that was pretty recent. So yeah, I just went home and wrote that down. So everything immediately is the past. But maybe you're living in the present while working on the past sure but sometimes when you're by yourself you can convince yourself of anything true i stole that from the world according to garp it's really good thank you that with john irving not me uh what's public's beer just mostly because i'm craving a beer at uh, what is it noon noon ish noon noon 42 noon 42 I'm, that's not good when you're craving alcohol at uh is it well no it's not <laughs> let's not split hairs why even delay this no I'm, uh, it's, I'm genetically, uh, I'm not going to have one. Sure. Sure. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, Publix beer is this, that when I was 16, I worked at a grocery store and I created this plan to steal beer. So I worked up front as one of the baggers and I concocted this plan where my job at night was to take all of the trash cans, which were basically just paper bags from all the different registers, put them in a cart, take them back to the garbage disposal or garbage, the garbage dump, and then bring them back. So I set up this route and I had excuses set for every step of the way if anyone was to question what I'm doing. And basically, I would walk by the beer aisle, put all of the beer into the garbage bags, and then walk out to clean the outside garbage bags, and then put my beer in the bushes, and then later I'd come back and grab it. So I was a thief for a long time. <laughs> There's more to that one that I didn't go into. But for the most part, it was I was very impressed and saddened at the fact that I created this elaborate heist of bush beer. Yeah, you could have reached over a couple. Well, uh... I could have shot for the stars, but I really shot for <laughs> just the bottom of the barrel. Has there's, I guess there's two. There's two, two things. And, and there's, I Has there ever been somebody in one of these stories and it's come back to haunt you? Like someone that you wrote about and then they got wind of it? Because that, that's happened to me. Yeah. And it was like, and I had to, I had a roommate. You may have known her I, I, when I, at Second City mm -hmm. and she dated Ray Davies from the Kinks. Yeah. And then she had a, nervous breakdown she was bipolar or whatever and it kind of kicked in during that and she started believing that ray davies was stalking her and slashing her tires and one day i came home and everything in the apartment like she dismantled like the toaster and she was like she just looked up at me and she's like ray has the house bugged <laughs> <laughs> and and then like one day i came home and she was gone like all her shit was gone and she moved back to where she came from i'm trying to keep it vague because <laughs> i'll ask you at lunch but uh, she, uh, oh yeah, but, and like, so I wrote about it because it was a very interesting story. It was yeah. also really funny and she uh, wasn't pleased about it. And I, and I think she thought I was trying to hurt her when I was, and making fun of the fact that she had a, a disorder. 
and I wasn't. I was like, this is a part of my life, and it's a very interesting story, and that's some of the, that's what I do. Right. There's that big question of how much right do you have over something? Like that happened to it's you. It's hard. You're, yeah. You're telling your pers personal perspective of what happened, it just happens to paint someone in a not too favorable light, which is a trouble I'm having with another that one I mentioned earlier. That I think it all goes back to the why. A lot of times I'll ask people or I'll just tell them outright, I'm going to do a story about you or about this time and we'll talk about it. But no one's come back pissed yet. But they will. <laughs> yeah, and I, at the time, I had a blog and I honestly, I just didn't even, I just, and then so, to my surprise, it became kind of popular. So eventually it did get to her and I never, I never even thought of that as a consequence of the situation. I yeah. just was like, oh, here's a story I want to, this is interesting. Uh, in four aces, the story of my mother, there's uh, an uncle that I've been estranged from ever since that time period that I'm curious what his reaction will be when he sees this. At this point, I can't picture why he'd see it or why it would cross his radar. But if he does, the thing I said to my mother at the time, because she encouraged me to write about this, and we were talking about this as the eventual story I was going to write about it. And the thing I said to her one day, once this uncle did something that was he couldn't take back, I exclaimed with glee, oh, thank God, I finally have my villain other than cancer. <laughs> and I was so happy he stepped into that role because I needed that role so very badly just story-wise because I don't want to make it just fighting this unwinnable war against cancer. Eh. But if it's a person that's standing in the way that you can overcome... That to me was more. Did you and did you relatable. try to like create that four aces into anything other than the? Oh, so many other things. <laughs> it's my Star Wars. I'll be tinkering with this thing <laughs> until I sell it to Disney. It seems like it. I mean, it's such a phenomenal story that it should be a film or something. I have drafts of a screenplay. I have drafts of a book that are constantly being worked on and tweaked and second-guessed. You should maybe make it a graphic novel. They really like those. That's really days. cool. That's that's a really good idea. I should, I've devote, had... <laughs> I should devote new time to this. That's what I've had managers and agents always say that, like, oh, maybe you should write a graphic novel because then that's an easier way to get your stuff made into films. It's like, I've spent my own entire life working on this one angle, and now you're telling me to go into something. I've never even read a graphic novel. Yeah, let alone you have to find someone to draw all of this. I, yeah, I've tried that too. I mean, I've tried to do little comic strips of my jokes mm -hmm. and uh, no one wants to fucking draw those things. Yeah. yeah. But you could. I'm sure you could find somebody to uh, sketch out two hour, a two-hour thing. <laughs> <laughs> and that's in verbal length. Who knows what that is in drawing length. I know. Uh, what about a, like, because some of your, I, I guess you're not like, oh, have you ever offended anyone? That's what I'm getting at. You're not an offensive guy. Yeah. I tend to be. <laughs> sure. Sure. We're the... But like people yeah. get really... There's just certain things you talk about and certain people just get really uptight. Like cancer is kind of a... a yeah. People get weird about... I got weird about it. I get it. weird about it. Uh, anytime I still hear it, I get weird about it. Statistically, we're probably going to get it. <laughs> of course. I mean, that's... Oh, I feel so predisposed to that. And, and the more they fuck with their food, we're really just... Ugh. Can I please go back to denial and optimism? Yes. Great. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know if I have. I'm sure I'm sure I have, but that has not been reported to me as you offended me. Even in your Second City days? Um, oh, you had your Jesus song. That, that was... Oh, yeah, we did. Here was one. <laughs> but you did that at my show in Chicago, so that wasn't as that was a pretty open venue for offensiveness, yeah, or just free for all, and yeah, and that one, I think, just because the game of it was so apparent of basically it was uh, high school assembly. This Christian rock duo was brought in last minute to sing a song. And then right as they start, the principal comes up and says, sorry, you can't say God here. It's a public school, so you have to change God to something else. Uh, that guy's name is Frank. Uh, the, the principal's <laughs> name is Frank. Why don't you uh, just say Frank instead of God? So the whole song was me replacing God, and it becomes this very homoerotic song that if it's God in there, it's just very much spiritual, but with a man's name in there. 
we played with sexual euphemisms. <laughs> um, but it is. It is. But it, I don't know if it offended anyone just because that game was just right. so. For some reason, I I thought. Did you once do it as a or did as Jesus or is that my realization? Because some Christian songs, there is the line like "Jesus come into me," and it's yeah, yeah. like I mean it's pretty homoerotic for or depending on it's very who's singing it. Yeah, it's, it's still very, pretty graphic. If you're talking about a spirit coming into you, it's very different than having something engorged in oh, blood see, I, thought, I thought I remembered some Christian song saying, uh, Jesus come on my face. That was mine. <laughs> now Frank's inside me and he's giving me all his love. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that that is good. Is there, What is your favorite story to ever tell? Like your quick little favorite. Like is there one that you're just like, oh, fuck, I can't wait to tell this again. Yes. Junior college, right out of high school, I was directionless and had no idea what I was going to do next. So I enrolled in Florida Community College at Jacksonville, which uh, was FCCJ and some very clever people called Fruit Juice. And I went to Fruit Juice for the 13th grade for one term. And during that term, I took an English class and an acting class. So I had no workload whatsoever. The English class was taught by a guy named Professor Robinson. And Professor Robinson was a man in his 60s. He had a wife, two grown children, and he was a grandfather and a former Navy chaplain. I know this because on the first day he introduced himself and gave him and really explained a lot about himself. The one thing he did not say, but what I picked up on very quickly was that he was very boring. Therefore, I did not go to class very often. And I would go to the beach where I would just goof around during the day. And one time I got really sunburned and my mother busted me not going to class, which she was an English teacher. Uh, and me not going to class, to an English class, was a cardinal sin in the house. So she was so upset with me for not going and so disappointed in me. And she said, you are going to go into that class and you're going to get extra credit. You just got accepted at the University of Florida. You're finally getting your life in order. You need to go in there with good transcripts. Fine. I accepted and I went to Professor Robinson and I said to him, that exact same thing. Got in the University of Florida. Uh, I'd like to do some extra credit, maybe write a paper or something like that. And he said, no, I don't normally do that. Uh, I'm sorry. And I said, it's okay. I just needed to ask. And then we began talking about what we had talked about that day in class. And we have a very scintillating conversation about that. And then he says to me, are you walking to the parking lot? And I say, yes, I am. He said, oh, I'll walk with you. So we walked to the parking lot together, still talking about that day. And then as we reach the end of the sidewalk, about to get to the parking lot, he says to me, so this grade is really important to you, isn't it? And I say, yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> and he looks at me and he says the most bold statement of, well, I'd like to have sex with you. So let's back up a moment. Here's what he's looking at. At the time, I was about 120 pounds, 5'8", real skinny. I had... Uh, really long, long bangs, like Thompson twins type bangs. And I had two gold hoop earrings in my left ear that were both approved and purchased by my mother. So that's what he's looking at as he makes this statement. So backing up, well, I'd really like to have sex with you. So then I say the most honest sentence I have ever uttered in my life. Uh, I was kind of hoping I could just write something. <laughs> to which he looked at me and he said, don't ever tell anyone about this. I nodded and he walked away. Now, I kept my promise to him for three minutes because the next person I saw was someone I went to high school with and I saw this woman named Farron and I ran to Farron and I said, this teacher just asked me to have sex with him and I don't know what to do and I'm so nervous. Uh. And she looks at me and her, her way of giving me condolence and making me feel better was to say, well... You do have earrings. <laughs> that night, I don't want to tell my mother. I'm very nervous to tell her. But if I'm going to get an F in this class because I have not had carnal knowledge with this man, she needed to know why I was getting this F, not because I was skipping classes, but because of that. So I told her, here's what happened. And she felt so bad because she's the one who forced me in that position. And then she, with this horror-struck look on her face, looks at me and says, was it your earrings? <laughs> So we decided to do nothing about it. We let sleeping dogs lay, and uh, I went in and took the exam, 
And there were two days you could take the exam, a Wednesday or a Thursday. And I opted for the second day because I assumed everybody's going to put this off. So everybody will be there and it'll be safe. Nope. Get there. And it's me and another girl. And she finishes 15 minutes before me. So then I got to make the weird walk of shame up to his desk, hand him the paper. He nods at me as if nothing has ever transpired between us. And then I exit the room. And then four days later, I received my grades in the mail and I got an A. Whew. Because he was probably terrified. Terrified. Absolutely terrified. And here's insecurity coming out. Uh, I was very insecure at that point in my life. And the thing that I always thought, I had gone to a couple classes. And there were less and less guys. And I started to think, was I the last guy he asked? Did he ask others and they turned him down? And I was like the, the 2 a.m. at the bar trying to hook up. Sounds he liked uh, Twinks. That skinny, that skinny kid thing. Skinny kid thing. Well, I was very twinkish. <laughs> but that's my favorite. Honestly, that was one that it's, I've told many, like... Did you take out the earrings? I kept them in until through college. <laughs> I loved them. I wanted to be Officer Tom Hansen, uh, Johnny Depp's character on 21 Jump Street. I thought he was the absolute coolest, and I wanted to look just like him, and I didn't, but I wanted to. You probably did. No, we not really. Are... And wrap-up time. Awesome. Is that acceptable to you? Very. Uh, are there things you would like to... Uh, do you have website, Twitter? Uh, definitely the show your, and where they can hear your podcast? Uh, podcast you can find on iTunes. Funny because it's true. Funny, C-U-Z, it's true. Go there. There's um, there's a bunch of episodes up. There's like 28 episodes up. Um, they're very fun. They're funny. Uh, they're popcorn. I call them popcorn just because they're only 20 minutes. and That's great. They're over before you know it. Uh, that the show is every other Tuesday at Second City, which is 6560 Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, in Hollywood, California. Uh, it's every other Tuesday. The next one is December 4th, which by the airing of this will probably be long done. <laughs> uh, and it's the last one of the year. And then I'll pick up again January 15th. That's great. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you for listening to uh, Conversations with Matt Dwyer. If you enjoyed the show, please donate to the show. Uh, if you can't afford to donate, uh, you can go to the Amazon link there on the feralaudio.com page and you can buy some bullshit from Amazon and I get a wee bit of a kick of that. So, uh, you know, that helps. Uh, explore the Feral Audio uh, website, listen to some of the other shows as well. Just follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore DeWire. Uh, all right. Politic people. I'm a body,
a branch of the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.